Welcome back for part two of an extended presentation of Ribbons and Bows, American Women in Violin History. The 1920s in the United States was a time of great change and newfound freedoms for women. Women finally got the right to vote, and there were more women in the workforce than there were previously. Even so, college was for men, and women, for the most part, were expected to stay home with their children. Many of the women who decided to work became nurses or teachers or worked in textile mills. As the decade went on, public acceptance of wage-earning jobs for young unmarried women continued to grow. Most of these were clerical or retail jobs. It also became acceptable for working girls to live away from their families. That is, until marriage. Marriage was the thing. It was the way for women to obtain economic security and social status. If a woman somehow continued to work while married, surely she would stop once she had children. However, a few women began defying society's expectations by smoking, wearing short skirts, cutting their hair, and drinking illegal alcohol. Prohibition made alcohol illegal from 1920 to 1933 in the United States. These shocking young women were known as flappers, and tongues did flap about them in more proper, refined, politically correct circles. The fiery-spirited, charming young violinist Ilsa Nemak roared to fame in the 1920s. She studied under Leopold Auer and toured all over America and Europe, bringing her dazzling fireworks to audiences all over the world. Her haircut and dress were reminiscent of the flappers who were on the cutting edge of fashion in the 1920s. Even when she was little, she garnered early praise. The Schenectady Gazette called her a charming young girl, who plays her violin like a mature artist, harmonics and runs admirably executed, characterized the Zephyr. Hungarian dance by Brahms was played with such an astonishing technique and dash that it was one of the high points of the program. Clever technique, good tone production, independence, and vivacity of style. As she grew up, the rebellious flapper in her surely came out in her music. Although, unfortunately, we don't have any recordings of her remarkable talent, we do have the words of her critics. The Hamburger Nachtwichten, commenting on her remarkable, technically and musically, Mendelssohn Concerto, tells us not just that her success and talent were great, but that her tone, distinguished by beauty and power, and a technique of virtuoso assurance and bright polish, were just as fine a recommendation for her as the sound objectiveness of her musical conception. And we know, courtesy of the Harrisburg Patriot, that her exquisite rendition of Brahms' Hungarian dance delighted the audience especially. So, she had the pyrotechnics and the romantic repertoire. What of Bach? Johann Sebastian Bach, the Baroque master who, according to some, is best not approached until one has a certain maturity. According to the New York American, her approach to Bach was interpreted with the breadth and earnestness that proved the performer's understanding of his message, played with serenity and noble expression. So, from the critics, we see how well-rounded a player she was, how wide her performance repertoire. Before moving forward, 
let's give a nod to a few of the lesser-known names. Cheney, Given, Freeman, Foote, Fry, Jeffrey, Neal, and Wade Smith. Violinists Grace Freeman and Thelma Given also performed in the 20s to lesser acclaim. Given was born in America in 1896 and died in 1977. She studied under Leopold Auer and performed at Aeolian Hall and Carnegie Hall and toured Europe. She played a guarnerius violin. Californian Grace Freeman had studied under Giulio Minetti and received formal training at the Conservatoire de Paris. She performed in Aeolian Hall. Also playing Aeolian Hall, Helen Jeffrey, seen on stage between 1920 and 1936. Miss Jeffrey also played Town Hall, Jordan Hall, and Carnegie Hall. Max Smith, writing for the New York American, hailed her as the Brunhilde of the Bow, a nomer that stuck because it fit. Another critic added, the title clings to her quite naturally when she stands on stage in blonde dignity and sweeps heroic measures from strings of her violin. There were also Louise Foote and Amy Neal in the early 20s, Mary Cheney in the mid-20s, and Catherine Wade Smith and Catherine Fry from Girard, Ohio in the late 20s. These women worked hard to break through the roadblocks they faced and leave a legacy for us to find. We simply couldn't fail to mention them. Fry, for example. She began playing a lot later in life, after age 56, and in a very different style than her contemporaries. She was a multi-instrumentalist, also playing harmonica, saxophone, trumpet, baritone, horn, saw, Hawaiian guitar, and the mellophone. She also made an instrument out of medicine bottles partly filled with water, each tuned to a different note. She saw a vaudeville violinist playing the violin by holding the bow between his knees and moving the violin across the strings, and she was inspired to do the same. Ribbons and Bows, American Women in Violin History, a presentation of Elfenworks Productions Beyond Film and Music, will return after this brief message. Hi, I'm Dr. Matthew Springer, a professor in the University of California, San Francisco Division of Cardiology. Did you know that smoking and exposure to secondhand smoke don't just increase the risk of cancer and lung disease, they also have immediate harmful effects in your heart and blood vessels? Preventing other people from being exposed to your secondhand smoke decreases their immediate risks of heart attack and stroke. By the way, even if you think you've trashed your own health already, and there's no point in quitting now, you're wrong. You'll still improve your own cardiovascular health if you stop. Quitting is hard, but by doing it, you can be a hero to yourself and your friends and family. Find tips to stop smoking at smokefree.gov. Now we return to Ribbons and Bows, American Women in Violin History. And now, meet Barbara Lull. Barbara Lull, another powerhouse of the late 20s, was born in California and started playing violin at age seven. She studied first with less famous teachers, Henry Bettman and Antonio de Grassi. Later, she went to New York to study with Leopold Auer and Alexander Bloch, performing all over Europe and America. She played with a strong, clean bowing, and her powerful tone put many contemporaries to shame. In her youth, she was hailed by the New York Telegraph as one of the most promising of native fiddlers for her warmth of tone, a very capable technique and such understanding of values. The praise for her tone and technique grew as she did. Listen to the critics rave. 
from the New York Times. Her strong, clean bowing, double-stopping, and passage work were shown in an early sonata of Leclerc. From the Brooklyn Times. Miss Lull is a formidable player, her tone presenting more virility and power than that offered by many members of the opposite sex. From Pioneer Press in St. Paul. As to her violinistic capabilities, there is so complete a range of them that it seems almost too good to be true. Yes, Lull was, as they said, a formidable presence on the stage, but she was far from alone. Ruth Breton was known both in America and Europe as one of the most gifted violinists of the day. The Berliner Tagblatt called her highly gifted, a past master of suppleness of finger and bow technique. She had studied under Leopold Auer in New York. That great Hungarian violin pedagogue, Leopold Auer, had primarily taught in Europe, and American violinists used to have to make the journey to him. His book, Violin Playing as I Teach It, is a classic that still influences teachers and students to this very day. He was especially opposed to the indiscriminate use of vibrato everywhere. This curious habit of oscillating and vibrating on each and every tone amounts to an actual physical defect, whose existence those who are cursed with it do not in most cases even suspect. The source of this physical evil generally may be traced to a group of sick or ailing nerves hitherto undiscovered. There is only one remedy which may be depended upon to counteract this ailing nervous condition, vicious habit, or lack of good taste, and that is to deny oneself the use of the vibrato altogether. Observe and follow your playing with all the mental concentration at your disposal. As soon as you notice the slightest vibration of hand or finger, stop playing, rest for a few minutes, and then begin once more, continuing to observe yourself. For weeks and months, you must continually guard yourself in this fashion until you are confident that you have mastered your vibrato absolutely, that it is entirely within your control. As a rule, I forbid my students using the vibrato at all on notes which are not sustained, and I earnestly advise them not to abuse it even in the case of sustained notes which succeed each other in a phrase. Leopold Auer, Violin Playing as I Teach It, page 24. Travels to Europe are all very well and good unless there's a war on, that is. Then your studies may be sidetracked, that's what happened to the young virtuoso Ruth Ray, another of Auer's many talented female student virtuosos. Violinist Ruth Ray was born in 1897 in Danville, Illinois, and lived until 1999. She moved to Chicago a few months after she was born and began playing at the tender age of four. She studied under conductor Frederick Stock, Hubert Butler, and Leopold Auer, moving to Germany in 1914. Although World War I unexpectedly cut short her studies with the legendary teacher, he still had a significant influence, as noted by one of her critics, who wrote the following review after a performance of the Mendelssohn Concerto. Whether Auer has some magic spell that turns out violinists, or whether he picks and chooses his pupils, accepting only those that have the signs of greatness, the fact remains 
that the Our graduates are the most striking crowd of young artists that this generation has produced. Of these, Miss Ray is a highly worthy member. Chicago Journal, February 14, 1920. She had few solo appearances, but those were curtailed by the war as well, and in 1927, she took her place as concertmaster of the Chicago Women's Symphony. Although arthritis stopped her from actively playing, she continued to teach until the age of 90. One of her students, Susu Mago, once wondered how much further in her music career Ray could have gone if she'd been born in this era, saying, a lot of women with great skills didn't have the opportunity to demonstrate it as much. There were other lesser-known women violinists. Cordelia Lee, seen on stage in the mid-19-teens. Hailing from Woodbury, New Jersey, we have Helen Ware, who studied under Friedrich Hahn, Clark, Sevchik, and Hube. Also from New Jersey, but from Newark, we have Emily Gresser, born in 1894. Emily studied under Sam Franco and studied in Europe. She performed in Europe and the United States. Her critics hailed her startling maturity and delightful bowing. Here's one quote. Tone of velvety quality and never gets away from that smoothness and beauty that characterize her authoritative playing throughout the evening. Ruth Kemper, who lived from 1902 to 1986, hailed from Clarksburg, West Virginia, and began playing at the age of five. She studied under Eugene Itzai and George Inescu and went to Salzburg Orchestral Academy for her formal training. She performed as a soloist in the New York area during the 1920s and then began conducting. Among her excellent qualities, she was known for her sweet tone, pure intonation, poetic reading, and ability to make difficult passages look easy. The Baltimore Sun hailed her as an admirable artist with a round and sweet tone, always marked by sympathy and understanding, hailing traits in her playing that gave genuine pleasure to her audiences and earned for herself fully deserved success. In addition to performing, Kemper also taught at numerous schools, such as Turtle Bay Music School and School for Strings in Manhattan, and was the musical director for the WPA Music School Orchestra. And she founded the National Guild of Community Music Schools. Sylvia Lent, enjoyed by audiences in the late 1920s, was a charming violinist whose tone was just as endearing as she was. She played with brilliant execution and had a rich and beautiful tone, technical control, and imagination, instantly winning audiences who demanded encore after encore. Critics hailed her in many ways. Luminosity, said the Times. Brilliance of execution, said the Sun. Flawless intonation, said the Herald Tribune. Virtuosity, said the Staatszeitung. And skill and expression, said the Post. The Bachsaal found her at the pinnacle of her art in a Berlin recital. And the New York Evening World sized her up as belonging among the first flight of violinists, male or female. But critics disagreed over her Mozart. Some said she gave a charmingly poetic interpretation. Others said she played forcefully, almost rudely, yet with breadth and clear understanding. And to top it off, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, writing in 1931, says, 
There are few, if any, artists of her generation and sex who are equal to her as masters of the violin and as exponents of its literature. Now, finally, meet Dorothy Minty, who's known for premiering the Violin Concerto by Charles Ives in 1928. Dorothy was born in Arizona, and her grandfather, Robert H.G. Minty, was a Union general in the American Civil War. She studied under Louis Persinger in New York. She performed frequently in New York and taught at Juilliard, Manus, and Manhattan School of Music. The New York World Telegram hailed her playing as beautiful music, very bright, very much alive, and very intelligent. This is about the time to speak of her as mature and complete artist that she certainly is, they wrote. An interesting fact about Dorothy Minty is that she played at the wedding of the well-known photographer Ansel Adams, whom she met through Cedric Wright, one of her violin teachers. The Great War had an effect on any and everyone who lived through it, including the violinists, from the greatest and best-known violinist of the era, Fritz Kreisler, who served, to Irma Seidel, who curtailed a planned trip to Europe, to Ruth Ray, who cut short her studies and returned home, Kathleen Parlow, Estelle Gray-Levine, Barbara Lull, Ilsa Nemec, all of them lived through and were shaped by this war and the American public, looking for an escape or at least a moment's respite, proved receptive audiences for these wonderful players. That's all for now. We look forward to meeting you again for our next installment of Ribbons and Bows. Until next time, keep a song in your heart and an extra set of strings, spread hope, and live life on the upbow. This episode features excerpts from works in the public domain and copyrighted recordings of Maud Powell and Dorothy Minty that were used with permission from the copyright holders. For details, including full legal notice, visit elfinworksproductions.com. Ribbons and Bows, American Women in Violin History, has been a presentation of Elfinworks Productions, Beyond Film and Music. Writer-producer-director Lauren Spieth, Research and assistant producer Devin Philo. Technical consultant Christopher Spieth. Narrated by Lauren Spieth. Audio engineer Josh Workman. Learn about all our products, including this one, available as an audiobook release, and find more information and detailed histories online now at www.elfenworksproductions.com. We thank you for your patronage and partnership as we strive to tell the stories that matter. Copyright 2018, Elfenworks Productions, LLC. All rights reserved. <laughs>